article I came across a few days ago, something I alluded to actually a week or two ago, now I think about it in terms of a topic, it's something I've been reading up on a fair bit as of late. Here's the headline, loneliness is an epidemic with physical impact. Researchers created a banal, uh, banal scenario, a group of people would play a frivolous game of catch tossing a ball to one another to pass the time, trying to keep it aloft. But one member of the group would never have the ball tossed her way. To put yourself in her shoes, you're in a group that starts a game of catch. The ball popcorns randomly around the group. Giggling and frivolity ensue. You keep waiting for your chance to join in the fun. But the ball never comes your way. You're patient first. You smile another smile. You inch a little further into the circle to try to draw attention. Your smile is becoming more forced now until eventually you conclude the ball is never coming your way. This game isn't for you. You pretend you didn't want to play anyway. You stop trying. The researchers discovered that the ostracized person will testify to an increased sense that life is meaningless and devoid of purpose. Now imagine this isn't an experiment with, but the shape of a life. Instead of waiting for a ball to come your way in a silly game of catch, you're waiting for anyone to call or drop by or speak your name. You can't even express it, but you're hungering for some sign that you are known. And if we're honest here this morning, truth be told, a lot of us right now feel like no one's throwing us a ball. We're left out and hungering for a sign that we are known. As part of the advance of the kingdom of God, the church is supposed to be, designed to be, called to be, a living demonstration of something so, so different. In fact, I'll just put it this way. We are called to be, in, in, in many respects, like an embedded team on foreign soil. A living demonstration of the gospel itself. Completely countercultural, even counterintuitive to what's within. We know the world needs that. So do we. So do we. If you have a Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 18. We're pressing on in our series through the Gospel of Matthew. We started in Matthew 18 last week. We're pushing just a little bit further. Actually, I'm going to read the same text that we read last week and just go a little bit further uh, with that. Matthew is the first of the four books uh, of, of the New Testament, first of the four Gospels that we have Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, and then John. We are, like I said, Matthew 18. We're going to start in verse 1, read on through verse 14. Now, we're really honing in on verses 10 through 14 this morning, but for just, we have to have a sense of the flow, the context, the events. This is not a myth. This is not a story. This is not a tall tale. This happened in time and space. And so what happens before oftentimes has a flavoring in terms of what happens immediately after. So it's helpful to understand the context of what's going on here. So, like I said, we're starting in verse 1, Matthew 18, 
reading on through verse 14. Hear now God's word. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Let's pray together for a moment. Jesus... Thank you for engaging with your disciples the way that you did that day. Thank you for, in the mystery of the inspiration of the Holy Scriptures that you worked in and through Matthew such that we have these words recorded for us, no more, no less than what you wanted, what you knew was necessary to be passed down through the ages. Thank you for your powerful providence such that indeed here in the 21st century in Tennessee, we can sit here and read this. That is astonishing. And we have to say that in in some strange way, all these events have been brought to, to fruition such that we are here today with this passage in front of us. We don't really know exactly why we would be foolish to try and uh, plumb all the depths and reason as to why us, why here, why now, this passage, but we know you know, and you have intent and purpose and design for all of this, and so we are asking that you would give us ears to hear. That what you have to say from your word would indeed not fall upon deaf ears, hard heart, unfruitful soil. Oh, we ask that you would give us truly ears with which to hear. And the soil of our hearts would welcome that seed and that great fruit would come forth. You know where we are. You know what we need. Meet us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I have another news article. And so since it's the World Cup, it's soccer news. Right, and it was a few weeks ago, so it doesn't have anything to do with uh, the, the teams that are currently, you know, in the, in the semifinals. But hang in there; it's, it's soccer anyway. 
Nothing can stop the world's most dedicated sports fan from supporting his beloved team. Ali Demirkaya, a soccer fan in Turkey who was banned from Denizali Atatürk Stadium for unspecified reasons, has taken the only reasonable course to watch the game. He rented a crane from high above, just beyond the stadium limits. The diehard Denis Lespor fan watched his team vanquish Gaziantespor 5 to nothing. He even led the crowd in a chant. Nicknamed Amuk Ali, or Irregular Ali, by the internet, <clears throat> the guy was suspended for a year, according to local news reports. But he just couldn't miss the game, so he decided to get on that crane quickly. Quote, that match was very important for our team, he explained to newspaper. I had to go to the police station to sign a paper to show that I am not watching the match in the stadium. Right. Then I quickly went to rent the crane. According to him, the stunt only cost him $86. And from his vantage point, he was sitting pretty. The fact that he took the love for the game to such impressive heights has inevitably captured the internet's whimsy across the world. Eventually, his special VIP viewing party perch had to, like all great things, come to an end. Police lowered the crane. Was it legal? Was it rational? What did he do to get banned for one year? Whatever the answer, the pictures are internet gold. For Ali Dimirkaya, devotion to his team shapes his decisions. That's fair to say, wouldn't you agree? Devotion to his team shapes his decisions. His heart has been captured. If you know anything about the game of soccer, you understand why the rest of the world refers to it as the beautiful game. But here's the thing. Even if you're, that's where you are in terms of your devotion, you're with, with Amir and all of that. The fact is, it's just a game. Even if it's the most beautiful game, it's just a game. And the Lord would have our hearts to be captured by so much more, by something that lasts, by something that endures, by something that stands the test of time. And you know what that is, what we see from our text? his love for his own. That's what he would have our hearts to be captured by, his love for his own. I mean, what else do we see? What, among other things, what, what do we see here in this text? That the love of the Lord for his own is an astonishing thing. And he wants our hearts to be captured by that. He wants our hearts to be captured by his love for his own. Now, how do we see such love, such love, portrayed here, on display here in, in this text, well, in four ways, and it's there in your outline. First, in his care for us. How tailored, I'll get to that in a minute, how tailored that is for us. Secondly, in his seeking us. Thirdly, in his rejoicing over us. And then fourthly, back to his care for us, sort of revisit his care for us, point one, coming back in point four, and how that plays out in a practical way that we need to grapple with, and it comes out again in this text. So let's look at these points one through four in turn. First, his care for us. His care for us. How does he? How do we see that here 
in this text. So it's very plain. Verse 10, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. <clears throat> now, this sits in the context, is why we read the, the prior text as we did just a moment ago. Verses 1 through 9 sets the tone for what Jesus is saying here in verses 10 and following. The command is quite clear. His concern is quite clear. He is concerned for these little ones. And as we talked about this last week, I'm not going to re-preach that sermon, but as we talked about last week, the little ones that he is referring to are not literal children. They are his disciples, humbled followers. That's, it's a metaphor. We talked about this last week. The child standing there is a living, breathing metaphor for a larger point that he is, is making. So he's making his concern is for his followers, for his humble disciples. And the command, the prohibition is clear. Do not despise them. Or another way to translate that is to say, do not look down upon them. You might be wondering, well, why would anyone do that? Because you understand that the family into which we have been adopted, by God's grace, the family into which we have been adopted is oftentimes a mixed and motley bunch. And when we spend an inordinate amount of time looking to the left and the right instead of in the mirror, we can be tempted towards pride and arrogance, despising looking down. And Jesus will have none of that. He categorically forbids it in terms of how we regard one another within the family of Christ, absolutely ruled out of hand. Now, why? Okay, well, he actually gives that here for us, but it might be a little puzzling because he grounds in the rationale and not despising, not looking down on the angels, the angels who are standing in the presence of God. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, we know from the scriptures that the angels are his messengers. Angelos is literally the word messenger. They serve as his agents. Angels are moral, spiritual, intelligent, personal, powerful, glorious creatures. We know that from the scriptures, what the scriptures tell us. We also know that they, they stand as representatives in the courts of heaven. In the book of Daniel, we read about how they, in some way, represent nations. In the book of Revelation, we read of how they, certain angels represent churches on this earth. And somehow, here in Matthew, we're reading... They represent individual believers. But still, what does that mean? Uh, the expression that, that Jesus uses here that says, um, they always see the face of my Father, that's courtly language for having immediate personal access to the King. You combine that with the fact that three times in this short little text that the words... Um, each one of these, or one of these, rather, is used. You pull all this together, and what you see is whatever else the angels, and this is not really an argument for guardian angels, by the way, and I don't want to get into that right now. But whatever else this does mean in Jesus' rationale as to why we are not to despise one another, why we're not to look down upon one another, is because God cares for us so deeply, so individually, so personally, that indeed, if in some way, he has appointed angels to represent the believer before him in heaven. Such is the depth of his care. That's the main thing. You see that? Don't, don't lose sight of his care because of some of the confusion here. That's the point. God's 
individual care for each one of us, each and every single one of us who are followers of his, his individual, personal, tailored, crafted care for the believer. Again, he wants us to know his care. That's, and not just in the corporate sense, but in the individual sense. So he doesn't, he doesn't just know us, he doesn't just think of us in terms of numbers, right? We're so used to being treated like numbers, like just, just another in a crowd, but he knows us by name, he knows us deeply, he knows us so, so personally, and he treats us and works with us and engages with us in a personal, individual fashion, so much so, I mean, there are times, just be honest, you're looking to your brother or sister in Christ, and you're wondering, why is their life like that, and mine's like this, and they're thinking, actually, you didn't know this, they're thinking the same thing about you, and the reality is we're all moving towards the same goal, growing in Christ's likeness, but he gets a hold of us at different points. To get to that same place demands different paths, different chiseling, different surgery. It takes different means, tailored means, individual means, personalized means, like a health coach, like a personal trainer, like a physical therapist, taking these universal realities and needs and personalizing them, individualizing them, tailoring them for, towards us. Do you see how he loves you? Not just in a bland, generic way. Such is his care for us, for his own. And he wants our hearts to be captured by this. And we see that's just that. That alone would be worth contemplating here this morning. We have a few more minutes, and we have three more points. So we have his care for us, his love for us. But what about when we go astray? What about when we lose sight of that and we get our lives into a mess as a consequence of that? What about then? We see something that here as well. His seeking us, and that's the second point. Verses 10 through 12, Jesus uses here uh, a, an analogy, an image that his disciples would have readily understood, the shepherd's practice. Let me start again in verse 10, read on through verse 12 this time. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And, of course, the answer is yes. He's speaking of the shepherd's practice, the shepherd's relation to the flock. Now, a hundred was about an average-sized flock at the time, believe it or not. It may seem large to you. It's more than I would want. But that's, a, that's an average size at the time. And he's speaking to that. And the shepherd's knowledge of each one, each individual sheep, they have personalities, and attentive and aware of their needs of their presence and their absence, which gets us to the next thing. His, not just his relation to the flock, but his commitment to the flock as a whole and to each one within. So again, aware not just of their presence, but their absence. So when one goes missing, he is, the shepherd is com so committed, not just to the flock, but the individual sheep within the flock, that he will put the flock in the charge and care of another. And don't think so many people have wasted so much time thinking, what a terrible shepherd, he's leaving other. That's not, that's not the way it even worked then. There were other shepherds. He's not leaving the 99 to the wolves. 
So he leaves the others in the hands and care of, of another and goes off. This is the, the thing. He goes off into the wild at great risk and cost to himself to bring back the one who was lost. Such is his care. And Jesus makes clear that there's an analogy being drawn. He means for us to see this, means for his disciples to see this between the shepherd's practice and the father's passion for his sheep. It comes out very clearly in verse 14. So it is not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And he's drawing on an Old Testament image that is so rich. We could spend another hour just reading texts. That, that dip into this, this idea, this theme of God as the shepherd over his people. Psalm 23, of course, being one of the best-known ones. But certainly his disciples, Jesus' the listeners there in that moment, are, are readily grappling not just with the shepherds out there on the hillsides and, and their experience with them, but also their knowledge of the Old Testament and how again and again God is described as the shepherd, and they're putting all this together, and they're really, oh my Lord. Such is your care for your own. Such is your care for your own. Which Now we're seeing the priority is so clear. The priority here of his care is so clear. For one of these little ones, these sheep, for his disciples, his followers, to go astray, to be deceived, to be lost, is to perish, to be destroyed, to be undone. And he will not have that. And so he will seek them out and he will search for them and reclaim them. Such is his love for us. His love for you. For you. And I'm trying to use that word singular. We know it's the problem with English, right? You is plural and singular. If I, if I had a singular one, I would use it. For you. Such is his love. Such is his love for us. It might be interesting to think in terms of a, of a sheep's perspective on this. You can imagine now kind of getting down low, right, and, and thinking as a sheep. Why would a sheep go astray? What would make a sheep go off there into the, the wilderness? If you can put your, you know, adopt the, the mindset of a, of a woolly lamb, here's what might go. It might go something like this, you know, I don't really think the shepherd is that great. I don't really think he's taking very good care of us at all. Especially me. I, I don't much care for how he's not giving me what I want. And I don't much care for how he's taking us to places I certainly have no desire to go. And frankly, the other sheep are stupid. Now roll this out. You're not a sheep anymore. You're a person. Take all those thoughts and import them. I don't care too much of how the shepherd is treating me. I don't trust him. I don't like his dealings with me. I don't care for how he doesn't give me what I want when I want. And how he won't give me, how he won't give me what I want when I want, and what he is giving me, I sure as blank don't like. And the people are stupid. Can't stand them. And so I'm going astray. 
I just gave you the top reasons people junk their faith. I do, that's, that's, that's what they were right there. And God's promise to us is, whatever it is, whatever it is that pushes or pulls or moves us away from him, he promises to move to us. That's the promise here. And it's an astonishing one. And he wants our hearts to be captivated by that, to be captured by that. His love for his own. But that then begs a question. And this takes us to the third point. Okay, he, he cares for us and he seeks us out. Uh, what kind of reception do I get when he finds me? Right? That might be worth thinking about. And that comes out here as well. In verses 12 and 13. What do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray? Does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. This is so much more than we would expect, right? If you're a shepherd, so we adopted the sheep's mentality. Now let's put on the shepherd's hat sandals or whatever that would be. So now we're the shepherd. If you're a normal shepherd, a sinful shepherd, and, and, and well, you think about all the trouble that this sheep has caused you, right? All the inconvenience, all the embarrassment. His sheep didn't believe him. All the trouble, all the inconvenience, all the embarrassment, frankly, a betrayal. And I know Psalm 23 says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me the instrument of protection and guidance. But frankly, if I'm the shepherd, I might be using those instruments upside your head for the trouble that you've caused me. Some of you know that we have a, a new German shepherd in our house named Lucy, and she's a great dog. We got her from a rescue down in Nashville a few months ago. And uh, she's, she's smart. She's fantastic. I could just go on and on. I was going to spend the rest of the sermon on Lucy, but I'm not going to do that. Um, but, but, you know, with every dog, if, if, you're, if you're smart as a, a dog owner, you're doing some training because you don't, you know, you've got to be the head of the pack here. And uh, one of the, the primary commands that this dog needs, if it's nothing else, it's not shake, it's come. That's the most critical command that you've got to teach a dog. Now, she's learned so much. She's come so far. I will confess, and Sarah can testify to this because she saw it happen once. I will confess, however, that in her early, or weeks and months ago, when she was, we were just working with her on this command, and she was, shall I say, a little willful in her response to me on this score. You know what I wanted to do? When she finally did come, I wanted to knock some sense into this dog. Think you do that, what are you teaching the dog? He's a crazy man, and this is what happens when I do come. You have taught the dog not to come. Literally, thank God, he does not receive us that way. He chases us down. He seeks and searches and rejoices choices when the lost is found, when we come home. He rejoices. Some of you may know that um, 
and this is the sub-point, as we would long for, so certainly not as we would expect, but as we would long for. Some of you may know that uh, this is not the first time in the Gospels that we read uh, of a lost sheep and Jesus as the shepherd and, and the reception, uh, an exultant reception taking place here. Uh, but, but it would seem that certainly what Jesus is doing here, it's using almost the same image, but for completely different reasons. In Luke 15, he speaks of the lost sheep in the context of one who is absolutely lost, who's never been a part of the flock. It's a context of outreach and evangelism. In Matthew 18, it's not that at all. This is a sheep that's been a part of the flock that has gone astray. It's not outreach and evangelism, it's pastoral care, which tells us what? There are all kinds of ways to be lost. There are all kinds of ways to go astray. But you know what else it tells us? Because the response in both texts, Luke 15 and Matthew 18, to either sheep, once lost, now found, is exactly the same. The shepherd rejoices exultingly, just exuberant rejoicing with the return of his lost one. Whichever way, whatever reason, whatever's going on, it's almost immaterial. He rejoices in the return and the reclaiming of the one that was found, such as his love for us. My friends, I don't know where your heart is this morning. I don't even know if you know where your heart is this morning. But this ought to be of tremendous relief to us. Whether you're thinking in terms of lostness in a Luke 15 sense or a lostness of in a Matthew 18 sense, it in a sense does not matter. Because every excuse that we would make to go home, there's no excuse. He's just taken them all off the table because he promises to rejoice upon our return. Go home. There's nothing but open arms waiting for you. Go home. He rejoices. He promises to rejoice in ways far better than we could ever expect but it's absolutely what we long for. His love is astonishing. His love for his own is astonishing. That's what he wants our hearts to be captured by. Okay, now I'm to the fourth point. And now we're revisiting, going a long way around the barn to the first point and his care for us and asking the question, how does that play out though? Context, all of Matthew 18 and on into 19 actually, has to do, and this is one of the, Matthew's big fourth of his five teaching sections in his gospel. All of this section, in particular eight, chapter 18, has to do with the, the, the new community that Jesus is creating and how we're to be doing relationships one with another. So the question begs to be asked, how does he, in an ordinary sense, care for us in the way that he does? And the answer is simply this. This is the principle. He cares for his people through his people. He cares for his people through his people. Yes, of course, we see in this passage, in some mysterious way, he cares for us. And it's beautiful, fantastic, mysterious through the angels, yes. And of course, through the Spirit and his oversight over all things in our lives. But we see chiefly so through his own. He cares for his own through his own, when you take a step back and read all of Matthew 18, it becomes very clear. We'll be kind of looping back to that in the coming weeks. 
You see, for all of the encouragement that is to be found here, what we've looked at in points one through three, point four is admonishment. It's not just encouragement. It's admonishment. It's not just indicative. It's imperative. It's not just what is. It's what must be as an outgrowth, an overflow of what is and who we are. And this is nothing more, nothing less than a reflection of the, the teaching of the, of the rest of Scripture. For instance, some weeks ago, when we were in the sermon, or, okay, truthfully, months ago, when we were in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, verse 12, we read, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets, oftentimes referred to as the golden rule. What would that look like if I've gone astray? How would I really want you to love me? Or perhaps we could go look in Matthew 22, not where we've been, but where we're going eventually. Matthew 22, verses 37 and following. The first command, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What would that look like in the context of one having gone astray? Well, lest we're left to guess, Paul tells us in the book of Galatians, Galatians 6, Here's your acronym, uh, Galatians, well, Gentiles eating pork chops and, and um, General Electric Power Company. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. Listen to what Paul says. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, lest you be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Skipping on to the book of James. So after a bunch of letters that start with T, you get to Hebrews, and then what comes right after Hebrews is the book of James. James 5. This is uh, Jesus' uh, half-brother, James, uh, one of the pillars of the New Testament church. And the last two verses of James's letter, James 5, verses 19 and 20, listen to what he says. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And this fits perfectly with exactly what we see in Matthew 18, the whole flow of it, everything what Jesus is teaching us here. No man left behind. No man left behind. That's a mantra as old as warfare itself. The idea being that uh, the bond between every soldier, sailor, airman, and marine cannot be broken, must not be broken, so much so that we need to have a dedicated, organized, trained search and rescue, combat search and rescue force to go seek and save the ones who are lost, left no, lest any be left behind, because none shall be left behind. And that is not just an adage intended for the military. It's intended for the local church. No man, no woman left behind. Because we're in a battle. We are in a war. We are responsible. It's part of the admonishment we find from this text. We are responsible, all of us, for each of us. All of us, for each of us. It's very clear here in this text. And so whether we're thinking in terms of 
the lost, the one gone astray from Luke 15, or the lost, the one gone astray in the connection to Matthew 18, whichever type we're thinking of, whoever it is that the Lord has brought into your path, you are responsible. You are responsible. Now, I realize that that doesn't sound so good to many of our ears this morning. And our eyes, for many of us, are very quick to put on blinders to this. And I have but one thing to say, and but just the scriptures have but one thing to say on that score. Then you need your eyes and your heart to be renewed. Because the clear testimony of scripture is that we are responsible, all of us for each of us. Such is, I'm looping back to nothing more than you've heard me say before in the encouragement phase of this message. The, loves, the Lord's love for his own is an astonishing thing. He wants our hearts to be captured by that, both in terms of encouragement and admonishment. The Lord's love for his own is an astonishing thing, and he wants our hearts to be captured by that. Let me just end by reading verse 14. I had more to say. I'm just going to have to tank it here because we're out of time. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Would that be the burden of our own hearts for one another? Would that be the burden of our own hearts for one another? Let's pray.